Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you who happen to cross our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's certainly where you come in. It's your questions that control the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So if you've got questions about a particular part of the Bible you might like to explore a little bit more up close and personal way than you ever have before, we would love to go there with you. Just let us know uh, where you'd like to explore and we will go there and hopefully uh, cause you to have a deeper and fuller understanding of what the Word of God's all about. Maybe you're going through uh, some challenging times in your life and you'd like to know what God's good, acceptable, and perfect will is in your particular set of circumstances. Hey, share with us what's going on in your life. We'd love to share with you those time-tested truths we find in the Bible and the amazing difference they can make in your life and circumstances. Uh, get online and uh, let us know, and we'll be able to explore those personal issues together. Tough questions about the Christian faith, takes on what's going on in the news, in our culture. Hey, we are all over those things each and every day. Uh, feel free to uh, share with us so what you would like us to discuss. We'll take a look at it through the lens of God's inspired word. Joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can uh, people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us online, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The spelling is, of course, questions, plural, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. And if you take advantage of that both on and off hours, even if we don't maybe get to your question before time runs out, we'll be able to keep your questions in proper order and organization when we are next on the air through that venue. If you'd like proper spelling or are able to join us through live streaming, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our webpage where we are streaming at ccftucson.online.church. That page will not only give you a countdown to the next broadcast, but will be showcasing the broadcast from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. or Pacific if you're listening post or pre uh, daylight savings time, because we don't do that here in Arizona. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Noting that, if you want to, again, join us at C-A-L-V-A-R-Y Christian Fellowship of Tucson, that will give you a step ahead of our social media platforms, which are, of course, not the most stable grounds through which we are standing. We still have them, though, at the time of this recording. So if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, give us a like at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our YouTube page is also a reason for hope. However, since we don't control when or why we're taken down from these platforms or information is even edited out of our videos without our permission, which that has, has happened That's before. happened before, yeah. We want to encourage you to join us regularly at our website so that those hazards, obstacles, and, of course, speed bumps don't interfere don't in fact interfere. There were two ways to say that phrase. I got neither. The point being made is this. If you want to listen to the broadcast unimpeded and consistently, join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and click on the Watch Live tab. We'll be taking your questions for the next hour, but of course the one giving the answers, the one we want to talk to first before we dare to even represent him, 
and his word. So why don't we start off with a word of prayer and get to a very uh, interesting follow-through email that will hopefully be a blessing to those listening. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Father, I thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be able to explore your word together here today. Pray, Father, that you would uh, show us and lead us and guide us in your truth. Uh, thank you, Lord, for being here present with us. And thank you, Lord, that you're far more interested in us understanding who you are and what your kind intentions are for our lives than we are in even uh, receiving that kind of input. Uh, give us wisdom, Lord, your uh, wisdom that comes from above, that's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, uh, full of mercy and good fruits, without hypocrisy and without partiality. I pray, Father, that uh, your word and your word alone would be what we end up focusing on and blessed by when it's all said and done, and we come to the end of this broadcast. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, we answered a question yesterday regarding our thoughts about the Septuagint, and there's a follow-through email that brought up some very interesting topics. Uh, they've been doing research into the canon, and most of it is quite solid, but there are a few outliers, as I'm reading his uh, follow-through, and some others that did not make the core canon, which may have merit. Job and Esther are two of his favorite books, but their historicity is dubious. He also mentions Second Peter is of questionable authorship, Luke's gospel is based on unknown sources, and of course, some of the Apocrypha could be inspired, but it's uncertain. So when it comes to all of these issues, he had some books recommending, um, well, I guess that he was recommended and is going more into this, but that, in fact, is... Uh, where I take a moment to quote the gesture given to us regularly by our mentor, Chuck Smith. No, no, no. <laughs> there were some statements made in here that definitely need some correction. So starting off, uh, why don't we tag team? I'll take Esther. You can take Job. Their historicity is dubious. Is that a good conclusion to come to? Well, uh, actually, no, as a matter of fact. If we evaluate uh, Job uh, and Esther as historical documents, we've got to ask ourselves a question. Are they true to the times and the conditions that are being represented here? Uh, the, the only reason that Job comes in any kind of question is that we don't have anything in the preamble to Job to suggest who the author was. There's a number of different speculations because it's a very ancient book. As a matter of fact, one of the, uh, the most shocking things that people hear uh, about the book of Job is that it predates the book of Genesis. Now, not concerning the subject matter, obviously, but concerning the time that it was written. Uh, the vast majority of scholars believe that Job, because of the different practices that are mentioned in the book of Job, the lack of a temple or a tabernacle being set up, among other things, indicates that it was probably written uh, roughly around the time of Abraham, the individuals being mentioned in the book of Job. And uh, their, their place names, that is uh, the Temanite and so forth, uh, indicate that this was a uh, time and a designation of territory that would be roughly from around the time of Abraham. As far as being a historical book, uh, there are those, John, that will uh, say that uh, Job contains a lot of poetry, and it certainly does, uh, but uh, they will say from that that it shouldn't be taken uh, seriously historically. But when we take a look, for instance, that Job is identified as an individual from a place called Uz, which we can, U-Z, I should say, uh, not O-O-Z-E, 
like Uzi. Uz might be another way of yeah. pronouncing it. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is this was a geographical place, a territory that uh, was uh, designated such uh, by uh, uh, other archaeological sources as being roughly from around the time of Abraham. The practice of Job uh, in terms of handling his finances, uh, the fact that he kept herds and flocks, uh, the description of uh, his relationship to his uh, relatives, and so forth, all seem to indicate a historical uh, background to this book. Uh, to add to that, we could uh, go to other sources and uh, ask the question, all right, is the historical uh, validity of Job uh, verified in other parts of the Bible? Well, no less an individual than God seems to verify it. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 12, the word of the Lord came again to me saying, son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut it off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Uh, he again goes in verse 20 and says, Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would only deliver themselves by their righteousness. So, uh, God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, seems to take Job as a very uh, bona fide historical person. In fact, uh, there's nowhere in the scripture uh, that seems to indicate that Job uh, was uh, considered anything else but an actual historical person. Uh, to go to the New Testament, we see in uh, the book of James that Job is uh, cited as an example of patience under extreme duress and is never treated just as sort of an object or a, a, a metaphor. He is treated as an actual human being by no less an individual than the half-brother of Jesus. So we have those two uh, testimonies. We have the internal evidences within the book of Job, uh, the geography that's mentioned there, the different economic practices that are mentioned there, uh, the, uh, the uh, associates of Job and their uh, legendary wisdom that is mentioned there that is verified in other sources. And so from all these things, we could put that together and say that Job is uh, a historically valid document. And even people who would quote unquote question its historicity can of course still fall back on it belonging in our Bibles because it doesn't claim to be a historical document, it's a poetic document. But it does in fact observe events of history that we can verify through observing what? People, places, and things. Is it non-anachronistic? Does it mention things that did or didn't exist at this time frame right. or presents them in the wrong way? Say for example, a big glaring issue is if they describe coin systems in finances before that was invented, that would be a problem, and that would, of course, be grounds to challenge Scripture. If it mentions the names of cities that either weren't built yet or were in the wrong places, those would be things historians would look for. Job doesn't make those sort of errors. It, in fact, falls in line with those themes. And the good news is, while Job is a remarkably ancient book, and we kind of have to use the material as consistently as we can with what we have because it's limited, Esther is far more recent. Right. as far as Old Testament right. uh, events are concerned. And we have an abundance of people, places, and things that we could use to verify that as well. I was uh, asked to put together this little pamphlet, so if you'll humor me, I'll just read through it. When it comes to first checking the dates, 
as to whether or not Esther actually lines up as an event that could have happened in history, we need to ask if the 5th century BC does in fact fit the description. Well, first of all, the people that were described, the characters that we can test, were King Azaharis, who would be the Hebrew equivalent of Xerxes, reigned in 485 to 465 BC. He failed to conquer the Greeks after the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis in 480 BC, and then according to the Greek historian Herodotus, not a Christian or a Jew, by the way, said he secluded himself to his harem. So that fits the, uh, I guess, MO of what the pretext of Esther was all about. He was also ruling when the Persian Empire controlled 127 territories from India to Ethiopia. This was also verified not just in Herodotus, but archaeological inscriptions in the city of Susa, where his palace would have been. Right. We also have the historical figure Mordecai, who was rendered as Marduka in the ancient Persian inscription in Aramaic, which dated back again to the reign of King Cyrus near the end of the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BC. Also note the C-R-Y-O-P-A-E-D-I-A, I I won't uh, attempt to pronounce that, but that source, as well as Xenophon and Herodotus, also write about how the king's advisors would gather in the city gates exactly as Esther records it. So there's not a false or a fictional narrative describing how the politics of Persia, or Medo-Persia specifically, would have functioned. It fits the right men doing the right things into the right time. Also note the places. Are they fictional or are they verifiable? Can we look at these places and see if they fit the descriptions were given in Esther? Well, first of all, the Persian Empire, which its capital was in modern-day Iran, is in fact a real place. Israel, likewise, is mentioned as the home of the Jewish people who the people were exiled to Babylon in the 6th century for 70 years, while the majority stayed in Babylon until the end of the book of Nehemiah. You can verify biblical sources like Jeremiah as to why they would be taken into Babylon, Ezra regarding their restoration to um, Israel after their time in Babylon, Esther obviously, and Nehemiah for the uh, political goings-on in Persia amongst the Jews. These are also not the end of the biblical accounts, but we also have Babylonian records of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem and the Babylonian chronicles verifying the captivity, which of course is what puts the Jews in the exact opposite end of the Middle East that they should have if they were Israelites and not Persians or Babylonians. Also, we can verify this through what was called the Lakesh letters. Uh, Babylon is a real place. It's the capital of the Babylonian Empire, as well as was taken over by the Persian Empire, by Cyrus the Great, and also by the Hellenistic Empires under Alexander the Great. Susa is the place in which Azaharis, or or Xerxes, rather, uh, his palace is located, and it's verifiable in ruins that we could visit today. And we also have mentions of Persopolis, which is the ruins of Xerxes' city gate, which we can also verify still exists to this day. It's not used, obviously, but it's there. Things that we can verify. Uh, These are a few written sources you can test on your own time. And if you want to know in the comments, or perhaps if you're listening, to give us an email, I'll be happy to send them to you. The first that would be used for cross-referencing Esther are the Annals of the Kings of Media and Persia, which were translated by... T.I., and then his last name is Bertzloff, who affirmed 
Esther chapter 10 and verse 2 is a reference in his historical documentation. So this individual considered Esther a historical source. The fictional account of 1001 Arabian Nights includes a mention of Vashti as an honored member of the Persian king's harem. Now, you who have read Esther know that name. We also have the history of the Persian Empire by A.T. Olmsted, who verifies the extravagance of the king's palace, which is verified archaeologically by Susa and Persopolis. We can also check the places, the people, and the things, and note that these all check out, as Aharis and Xerxes did rule in these regions at the time their territories were reported. Susa, Persopolis, Babylon, Israel, and the Persian Empire all check out as real places as they are presented in the 5th century and the Book of Esther. It lines up. The ruins of Susa, Persopolis, Babylon, and Israel are all verified and available to the public as real places. So this isn't fictional or non-historical. We can also check the critics of the uh, existence of, or I guess the validity of Esther. First of all, Herodotus, Xenophon, and the other source, again, I'll hesitate to spell it, it's C-T-E-S-I-A-S, Cestus, I believe, would be how you'd pronounce that, were not Persian or Jewish. We can't associate bias or corruption in their text because of some sort of cultural obligation. Also note, the information that sets the background for Esther's historicity has never been called into question. When we look at, say, for example, the reformer Martin Luther, who believed that Esther did not belong in the Jewish Bible or in the biblical canon, it wasn't because Esther wasn't historical. He said it was because it was too Jewish, that it didn't have anything to do with God. There's no mention of God. That's the biggie as far as people denying uh, whether Esther belongs in the Bible. But not belonging in the Bible or not bears no credence as to whether or not it's historical, which is what the claim is. Also note as well, when we discuss the issues that are brought up against it, we mentioned one. There's also the claim that Herodotus, one of the sources we cited, claims Amestris was Xerxes' queen. The problem is twofold, that he has the Bible and Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, against his report. So we go with more information rather than less. It, could, it is possible for Herodotus to have made an error. And it's also possible Amestris may have been another name for Esther. Yes. <laughs> we can't t- dismiss that possibility either. Also note that there's a objection that kings weren't known for these wild and drunken parties, but from what we know about the ancient world as well as this time in Xerxes' history after his loss at the hands of the Greeks and the Roman historian, or Greek historian Herodotus, verifying that he was rather depressed, him going into his harem and hosting a drunken party does fit his mood. The persecution of the Jews isn't reported in Persia at this time, at the hands of the Amalekites. However, that's completely disregarding Esther as a document. We do have a record of this, but it was written not by Persians, who would be, and I'm being sarcastic, all too eager to show corruption within the king's inner circle to manipulate one of his other trusted advisors' execution. There's a reason why they wouldn't uh, want to tack that on to his proud wall of achievements. But we do have records because the Jews considered it a great example of providence on the part of their God. So note that point. It's not conclusive. 
We can also note that there are other examples of Jews facing persecution in Egypt in the 5th century that we've only found evidence for today, within the last 10 years. Yeah. doesn't mean that we won't find more information. You can't come to conclusions on absence. You come to conclusions on evidence you have for or against something. Fourth, uh, the name of the festival, this is an objection to Esther, changed over time. Before it was called Purim, they uh, refer to it in Josephus' writings as P-H-R-U-R-A-I-O-I, but it doesn't change the fact that this festival was celebrated for historical reasons. The nearest equivalent would be like claiming the United States called July 4th Independence Day, but other people over time just started to call it the 4th of July. Well, that doesn't disprove the Revolutionary War is historical. Understand that's a bad... That would be quite a jump. Yeah. That is a bad objection. And then finally, the objection, the Dead Sea Scrolls do not include Esther, but as our original comment notes, the Septuagint does. And that is a point that stands. It wasn't fiction because the history behind it checks out. And uh, also on a side note, Esther's two banquets that she hosted in order to get the king's attention may not have been archaeologically recorded, but they did take place with, in real places with real people in and insofar as we can test trustworthy historical document. Now, hopefully that uh, isn't causing your brain to melt because we're not done. But there's other information regarding Second Peter and whether or not that is a uh, not a historical document per se, that wasn't objected to in the comment, but of dubious or questionable authorship. Now, just like with the bad reasons we went through with Esther, what are some of the reasons why they question Peter as the author of Second Peter? Not because they couldn't read the first chapter and first word, but because when these things are brought forward, they compare First Peter, which most historical critics don't question. And second, Peter, and say, there's a lot of differences in the language here. This is very close to his execution, might have been written by somebody else because of the language differences. And of course, uh, there are books that are mentioned in our Bibles, but not necessarily scripture, like 3 Corinthians and the letter to Laodicea that Paul wrote. Yeah, doesn't mean, Didache, yeah. yeah, it doesn't mean that they belong in our Bibles. Yeah. But the problem is, of course, what were the reasons positively that second Peter was not only recognized, his canon, Origen and his references aside, he was the earliest church father, and we question that, but uh, earliest Christian source who mentioned Second Peter as belonging in the canon. He just kind of disregards the objections out of hand, but we don't want to do that. Why do we believe that Second Peter belongs in our Bibles and as well the Gospel of Luke? Well, uh, I was uh, all set to uh, go on the Gospel of Luke, but as far as the book... Well, it's the uh, same uh, answers. Second <laughs> uh, Peter is concerned. Uh, first of all, we got to ask ourselves uh, the question, could it have been written within these, the time frame involved? Yes, absolutely. We have mentions of second, uh, and quotes from Second Peter uh, that uh, date to the late 2nd uh, century uh, and uh, the, the uh, letters of early church fathers. As far as style is concerned, uh, some people say, well, the vocabulary is different and so on. Well, a couple of possible explanations for that. Uh, we do see uh, in a number of instances in the New Testament how different uh, books were written by amanuenses. Amanuenses? Well, basically, uh, these uh, uh, books would be dictated, and a secretary or an amanuensis would write down the words as they were being written. Well, different amanuenses would have different uh, styles in terms of how they would write and so on. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to, in a sense, be an amanuensis, 
uh, when I worked for Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Costa Mesa. He was uh, assigned to be the editor for his books. But in essence, what I was doing was taking the raw transcript of his messages that secretaries would type out from his tapes and CDs and so forth. And I would take these raw transcripts and then have to convert them into a literarily acceptable format while preserving Chuck Smith's voice. Boy, you want to talk about uh, nervous time. When he asked me to do that, he said, oh yeah, I had this guy uh, who was uh, my editor at uh, Major Christian Publishing House. I did a book on the last days, but I read it and it was this guy's thoughts and it wasn't me at all. And uh, you know, and I'd talk to the guy uh, and he said, oh, you know, I was just trying to say what he said. You know, I just, I'm, I'm really confused about all that. So I came up with a system. I'd sit down and uh, I would try to put what Chuck said in a literary, literally, literally acceptable format. Uh, and, and by that, what I mean is that if you've ever heard Chuck Smith teach, you know that he was master of the run-on sentence, you know, the long pause and so forth. And, and so there would be like one sentence that would take up three quarters of a page. Uh, so I would have to break that down. And all the time saying, okay, how would Chuck say this? Not how would I want it said, but how would Chuck say this? And so what I would do, what I told Chuck I would do was what I called a blue pencil edit. I would go through uh, the raw transcript and I would make the changes in pencil and then I would go over it with him and make sure that it really was preserving what he wanted to say and preserving his voice. And then and only then would I type it out and then submit the final uh, uh, draft. Uh, the book Why Grace Changes Everything uh, came out of that particular process. Which, again, is what dovetails us into the Gospel of Luke. The same objections are made in saying, well, we don't know how or from who Luke got his information. Obviously, it isn't listed to us in some sort of appendix or concordance, but if we're going to test something rationally, is it a reasonable conclusion to say on the same grounds that someone would question not conclude, but question Second Peter. We're not going to go liberal scholar route and say if there's a single question, that's a conclusive answer to a no. We want to be rational. What is the reason we have to conclude that when Luke introduces his gospel as setting in perfect order all things to which he had heard and seen, that is, in fact, a reasonable way of getting information. Well, taking a look at the content, I think, uh, first and foremost, you know, is, is it a book that would be representative of the times that it was written in? Uh, can we verify, say, by certain references that we find within the book of Luke, that Luke is, in fact, giving us history? In fact, uh, are there even, believe it or not, problems that we run into in the book of Luke that would suggest that we are dealing with a historical document rather than something that was written much later. Uh, first and foremost, we have to ask ourselves the question, what was Luke attempting to write? Well, uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand and set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you have taught. Now, the uh, word here, perfect understanding here, uh, is a really interesting term, especially since we are told, for instance, in uh, the letters of Paul, that Luke was a physician. He uses a term that would was be used to describe, uh, in essence, an autopsy. 
a uh, charting, if you will, that is also used in the writings of the uh, Greek physician Galen of uh, the various symptoms and states that a person would go through to have a particular disease. In other words, Luke is looking at the life of Jesus and the accounts that he is putting together of the life of Jesus with that kind of intention in mind, that kind of certainty and attention to detail. Uh, a detail that we could point out uh, as far as a uh, historical matter is concerned is uh, found in the book of Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. It says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, this is a hot button of controversy for the book of Luke because uh, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Quirinius's reign uh, took place uh, somewhere around the time in Syria, somewhere around uh, the time of uh, AD 6 and 7. Now that's about 10 years after the birth of Jesus. And so there's a number of different theories that have come forward. Okay, Luke made a historical error here uh, regarding Quirinius being governor and the census taking place. Uh, the other one is that the Greek word first became governor is key. It can be translated before. Thus, Luke chapter 2 and verse 2 could say uh, this was the sentence taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria, and that's possible. But probably more likely is this, that Quirinius ruled Syria twice. He was a uh, Roman politician, he was an expert on that particular area, and so it was very possible that he would be called in more than once to uh, have a governorship uh, in that particular time. The first census mentioned in Luke chapter 2 and verse 2 uh, refers to a census that occurred during Quirinius's first term as governor. Now, interestingly, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 5 and verse 37, he mentions another census that took place uh, that, uh, that uh, would uh, tend to uh, be associated with the time of A.D. 6 and 7. So uh, the, uh, the fact that Luke does deal with both of these situations and uh, in uh, the Acts chapter 5 passage mentions, uh, in, again, quoting uh, Gamaliel and the, uh, the Jewish council, talking about a uh, uprising that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria during a census. Uh, we can pretty much denote that this is that second census that was involved. The first census probably took place roughly around the time of Jesus' birth, roughly around 4 BC, as, as we would uh, render it there. So, you know, when we have to deal with these kind of specific historical references, to specific historical persons, like Augustus Caesar, like Quirinius being a governor of Syria, we can check these sort of things out and see if it matches the historical record. Uh, no less, less a, an individual than Sir William Ramsey, who is considered probably the most renowned scholar of Roman history uh, in the last 200 years, uh, was a skeptic and a non-believer. Uh, one of his colleagues challenged him to evaluate uh, the historicity of Luke's writings. Uh, he was uh, given uh, the book of Acts and his friend was given the book of Luke. Uh, well, Sir William Ramsey was first skeptical about it, not thinking they really had anything to contribute to his studies on Rome, but he came away completely changed. He came to the conclusion, this is a quote from Sir William Ramsey, that Luke is a historian of the first rank 
and Ramsey was so impressed with his historical detail, not just about the politics of the time, not just about the geography of the time, not just about the culture of the time, not just about the cities during the time, not just about the designations of different uh, leaders that they would have during that particular time, uh, not just the monetary uh, transactions that would happen during that particular time. He was so blown away by the precision of Luke that uh, he came to believe that Jesus rose from the dead historically and became a believer. So there you go. And then that ultimately is what brings us back to when we let liberal voices have more influence than they ought to. There was a Babylon Bee article. It's a Christian satirical uh, parody site, basically, where they just do these uh, little mock-up articles and so forth. One was released some time ago, but still, I think, bears... uh, too close to the point for it to be almost a joke. There's always the obligatory comment in the uh, below the articles that says, I thought this was supposed to be satire, where they read that a historical critic uh, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that a report he wrote five years ago couldn't have been written by him. And he notes all the changes in languages and is just paradising these absurd standards. Yeah. Now, when it comes to consistent historical and reasonable approaches to historical criticism, we first need to know what the rules are. We also need to make sure they're being applied consistently. If the critic comes to the Bible with the goal in mind of saying, this isn't true, now change my mind, you don't go towards any text objectively like that, which is why pretty much anything that we receive a thousand years ago in writing is considered basic history. But you can't teach the Bible because that actually has evidence to support it, but not the kind of evidence that liberals like. Now, when it comes to those attacking from the outside, we need to make sure that we only allow those voices to influence insofar as verification of people who are trying to disprove the Bible but have to admit key historical details. If we're talking to Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses and we make the point of emphasis that Jesus did in fact physically die on the cross and they're admitting this by atheists and liberal scholars, that is something they can't object to because it's coming from people who would use even the most obscure excuses possible if it wouldn't ultimately destroy their credibility as professional historians. That's why we go to these people. But if we use it to come to conclusions about whether or not something ought to be read, don't let Job or Esther become less of your favorite books of the Bible because their historicity seems dubious. The people who came up with those things, A, aren't presenting rational evidence, or B, aren't presenting it equal-handedly, which we hopefully have. But if, on the other hand, we take a step forward and say, well, what about all the in-house disputes? What about, say, for example, and we got this follow-up from Isaiah, that section at the beginning of John chapter 8 and the end of chapter 7, where some people say that it was found in the end of the book of Luke, and others that it doesn't even belong in the Bible to begin with. How do we know what passages actually belong in our Bible? How would we respond to that assertion? Well, okay, run that by me again. Regarding the beginning of the eighth chapter of Luke and the end of chapter seven, the woman caught in adultery, there's people... Okay, that's why I was confused. It's John chapter eight. I said Luke. Uh, The point being made, though, is this. There are people 
respected people in Christian circles who say, I don't believe this belongs in the Bible. There's people who make the question and say, using these same principles, the the second Peter rule, right? The Greek seems off the way John has been phrasing everything, say it would more appropriately belong in Luke. Others say that it was found in ancient manuscripts that were in Luke but not in John. Others would say other things, but the point being made is this. What reason do we have to A, read the eighth chapter of John, and B, to leave it where it lies? Well, uh, the controversy comes up because of uh, a controversy regarding uh, how we verify which verses in general should be in the New Testament. Uh, you know, and this is our disclaimer before we even ex- explore any of this, that the vast majority of the New Testament, seven-eighths of the whole, is accepted by scholars of all stripes as being true to the original. If we remove trivial er- uh, discrepancies like word order or spelling of names, the uh, amount of verification we have just goes through the roof. Uh, If we were to take uh, all the passages in the Bible that are still held as questionably being true to the original by scholars of all stripes, print them up, we'd come up with less than one half of one page of text, and no major uh, uh, doctrine of Christianity is called into question in any of these so-called disputed passages. But uh, when we talk about John chapter 8, Jesus dealing with the woman caught in adultery, there are those who will question this. Why? Because uh, although the account that we have of Jesus dealing with a woman caught in adultery is in uh, a wide variety of manuscripts, a huge amount of manuscripts, most of those manuscripts are tied to the Textus Receptus, that is the translation of the Bible based upon manuscripts that were uh, pretty much in vogue in the Eastern Church. They didn't really take the Western uh, documents into account there. Now, uh, modern translations of the Bible, like the NIV and the ESV, will tend to say, okay, uh, but we have more manuscript evidence now And in the majority of the other manuscripts that we have, even the ones that predate uh, the manuscripts that the Texas uh, Receptus was based upon, we don't see John chapter 7, really verses 53 through 11, as a part of John's gospel. And so the debate goes on, okay, does this belong there? So if you read the NIV, you read the ESV, you will see that this will be in brackets, uh, in those translations, and they will say something like, scholars don't you know, have questions about whether this is true to the original or not. I take the position that it is, and, and this is why. Uh, some people will say, well, you know, th- it just seems like a, a break in the flow of the Gospel of John. It just doesn't seem to fit. Well, whenever somebody says it seems, what they're offering, in a sense, is an opinion. You know, when you read John chapter 7 leading in to all of this, you know that there was a huge uh, dispute uh, among the Pharisees as to who Jesus was. The officers came to the chief priests, were told in verse 45, and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, are you also deceived? Have any of the other rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. 
Now, you don't have to be a New Testament uh, manuscript scholar to figure out. Uh, the uh, Jewish religious leaders of that time were having a huge controversy over what to do with Jesus. They had made up their mind that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah, and they were going to do their best to discredit him. How interesting, the very uh, next verses is an attempt to what? Discredit Jesus. Well, I don't see where the break in the flow is. Um, you know, again, uh, at, right after Jesus says at the end of this particular uh, section, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. It says, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees answered and said to him, you bear witness to yourself and your witness is not true. So I don't see where the break is. You know, you've got uh, the Pharisees debating among themselves what to do. Uh, their guards don't haul Jesus in when they're supposed to. They say the crowd's cursed. Nicodemus tries to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, we don't judge someone before we've heard him. And then we have this incident that takes place where Jesus is attempted to be discredited publicly by bringing this woman caught in the act of adultery. Notice the man's not there. The woman is. Uh, could very well be a setup. This, this uh, incident takes place. Then Jesus speaks out about being the light of the world. In other words, if you really want to know the truth, you need to look at me. You don't need to be in debate. You don't need to be in darkness. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. These same Pharisees indignantly say you're testifying about yourself. So to me, uh, if we're going to use the word seems here, it seems like the whole thing flows very normally or naturally. But let's throw that out. Let's say that it doesn't seem to fit. And some people will say that the language used here is different than the rest of the flow of language that we run into in the Gospel of John. So what do we do with that? Well, there is a theory that this was a legitimate part of the Gospel accounts, that it may have been a part originally of the Gospel of Luke, but was placed by a scribe at a very early time in this part of the Gospel of John. There's other ancient manuscripts that include this in their New Testament, but they include it kind of as an appendix because there was a debate as to whether this belonged in Luke or whether this belonged in John. But there was really not a debate as to whether this belonged in the Word of God. Early church fathers, I mean early second century church fathers, quote from this passage. But there was a big controversy about it. Uh, no less uh, an individual than Augustine didn't like it in the Bible. You know why? Because it, he thought that people would look at this and think that the Bible was soft on adultery and that they could be forgiven for that and that uh, people will take this as license to be immoral and unfaithful to their wives. Now, why would he have an objection to a passage that isn't in the Bible? Oh, yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons he said that he didn't feel like it should be in the Bible was because of that. Well, just because somebody can misuse a passage in the Bible doesn't mean that it doesn't belong in the Bible. I think it's a pretty weak argument that's involved there. Bottom line is this. There are a number of ancient manuscripts that don't include this particular section of the Gospel of John. There's a number, a great number, that do. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you show me your manuscripts, I'll show you mine. The question that we've got to ask ourselves is this. I always hearken back to what Gail Irwin uh, called in his classic book, the Jesus style. Do we see anything in this account that is unique, in a sense, 
to the Gospel of John, as far as the character of Christ, as far as how he dealt with his adversaries, no. as far as how he showed compassion to individuals who found themselves in the consequences of sin. Sarcastically, I would say it is absurd to think Jesus would forgive someone in sin. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, when I look at this, I see this, if you'll pardon the expression, it's a very Jesus-y passage. Uh, I don't see any overwhelming evidence from a manuscript point of view that this doesn't belong in the Word of God. Uh, the statements of people like Augustine and others kind of tip the scales as to why this might have been somewhat of an embarrassing uh, statement uh, in some uh, sections of the Christian world. But as you've mentioned often, Sean, one of the greatest uh, examples of historical attestation is what? Embarrassment. He has to admit something. The testimony of embarrassment. You know, this would throw a wall. So you Christians are saying adultery is okay. Uh, no, you'd have to explain exactly what was going on here. So the radical love of Jesus on display, the presence and, and reality of this particular passage in these manuscripts. I always get a little leery when someone says there's words that are used here that aren't used anywhere else in an account because, you know, say, you know, for instance, I, I used to do like backyard uh, astronomy. I used to have a little 100 power uh, telescope that I got from, you know, like a Costco or something like that. And you could see the planets and the stars and stuff like that. And I get together with some friends and, uh, you know, this, this fellow invited me out to uh, look through his, uh, you know, 10 inch, you know, huge computer driven uh, telescope uh, out in a very dark site. And you could see all kinds of uh, wonderful deep space objects. Well, talking to a group of people that were really into backyard astronomy and understood the lingo and understood what you were talking about, we would have a very different conversation out there at that dark site than I would, say, sitting around with some of my relatives with my 100-power scope from Costco. Uh, you know, I would use different vocabulary in those different situations to describe, well, maybe similar things. You know, like saying, oh, yeah, look at Saturn. You can kind of see a little ringy around it. You know, but, uh, you know, when you talk to the people who are more... Uh, into it, they say, "Oh, look! You know, you can see uh, the orbit of Titan here, and it's occluding the rings, and and so on." They they use technical jargon, and you know, I can flow with that te technical jargon, but I don't get together with people who don't understand the technical jargon of backyard astronomy, and just try to uh, blow them away by talking over their heads. You try to adjust your language to the audience that you're dealing with. So, you know, there are terms and, and, uh, and things that would be appropriate to a certain situation that wouldn't be appropriate to others. So when someone says, well, the language seems different, okay, why is the language different? You know, could it be that it was appropriate for just this set of circumstances? So I would say that uh, the bottom line is this. I'm going to stand before the Lord someday, and he's going to ask me to give an account for how I taught the gospel of John, his word, right? I would be much more comfortable standing before the Lord and saying, yeah, Lord, I, I taught uh, John chapter 8, verses 57 through 11 as being your words and being accurate to what you did. Now, say, for instance, Jesus looks at me and says, oh, well, that was a later edition and that wasn't really there. I would feel much more comfortable saying to the Lord, well, Lord, for these reasons, I taught that and I really thought it represented your truth and the things you did in there were verified in other places of the New Testament, so I taught it. 
I'd feel a lot more comfortable doing that than saying, well, you know, I did some studying into the ancient manuscripts, and I came to the conclusion that this uh, pericope adulterae didn't belong in your words, so I didn't teach it to the people, and I told them to ignore it, and that their Bible has passages in it that are full of holes. So uh, notice just <laughs> notice yeah, what just happened yeah. here. First, you made a truth statement. You believe that John 8 in its introductory verses, belongs in the Bible. Your explanation, your illustration of why that truth statement does have muster is because you either showed that the objections against it are lackluster or that the objections for it in linguistic context or in alternative evidences don't necessarily mean it doesn't belong in the Word of God. Right. Then you gave an application with your own experiences in backyard astronomy acting that out. That's how you verify truth. Now, understand there are people who can come to different conclusions, and we right. respect them. Right. There are people who can come to bad conclusions, and we can still respect them. But understand that we want to have a reasoned hope. And if this is reasonable to you, check and verify with what we've talked about, and hopefully we can go into more detail if you need it. And just as another follow-through, Isaiah wanted to know if uh, this woman was being set up or if the guy had already been punished because they had to verify these things with Roman law, but figured to multitask with Jesus. Well, A, I think it's much more in the character of the Pharisees to have set this woman up just so they could manipulate Jesus into doing something, unfortunately, discrediting to himself as far as his love and his uh, emphasis on truth. Grace and truth was what we saw, the uh, right. glory of the only begotten of the Father. The point of emphasis in saying that, oh no, the Pharisees would never violate the law like that. Are you kidding me? In that very week, they would break almost 30 laws during his trial alone. Right. <laughs> so right. it's not beyond their character yeah. either. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and again, I mean, sometimes people say, well, it seems a little superstitious that Jesus would write in the dust. But we're told in the book of Jeremiah that those who reject God, the living water, and go for empty cisterns that will hold no water will have their names written in the dust. Which was acted out verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you look at it, and I guess my question is, do you see anything in this passage that uh, could not be verified by the description? Now, don't get me wrong, there's some very good Bible uh, scholars and people that I respect that say, no, nah, I, I really don't think so. If we took out John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, will we have forever damaged the message of the Word of God? Is there something taught here that you can't find elsewhere? No. No, but it is a vivid illustration of the unconditional love of Jesus, and it does, I think, have quite a bit of manuscript support for it, and uh, it's not there, it's one in one or two manuscripts, and, and oh my goodness, you know, uh, we're, we've just got to fake it until we make it here. Uh, you know, we do see it quoted in early church fathers. Uh, we do uh, see it past the other tests we'd have for some passages that some might find questionable. So to me, it, it, it's kind of a settled issue there. Now, if you take the other point of view, you have every right to be wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to divide fellowship over this. I'm not going to say that someone that uh, denies John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is, should be in our Bibles, is a heretic or is damaging the faith. Uh, but for the reasons that I've mentioned personally, that's why I take the view that I do. All right. A uh, question from Jermail who wants to know, in the new creation or in heaven, will we see God the Father? And you reference the book of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4, which I think answers your own question, but I'll read it anyway. Uh, this says, they shall see his face. Now, who is the he? Let's go one verse prior. There shall be no more curse 
but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his, who, God's, face, and their, his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, for they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Yeah, Jeremiah. <laughs> I think we can just say yes. Um, here's a great question from John, uh, individual from a denomination that emphasizes baptismal regeneration, that if you aren't water baptized, you're not saved, says that Acts 2.38 proves you must be baptized in water to be saved and for forgiveness of sin, where the Apostle Peter said, be baptized in the name now, of the Lord Jesus yeah, and be that's, saved. That's a standard proof text they go to. Yeah. yeah, and then other than pointing out Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for those who aren't in on the reference, it's just by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right. Note, no mention of water. Right. But note that point. Uh, how can I explain what this verse in Acts is actually saying? I'm going to preemptively caution you against something, because in good Christian circles, there's a YouTube page, and I Again, you know I don't normally do this, but I want you to be on your toes for this. A great YouTube page called Lutheran Satire actually made a video mocking people who would dismiss the idea of baptismal regeneration. It was called The Thief on the Cross. And it was uh, basically this uh, parody of the song that doesn't end. This guy's in an endless loop in hell of having to talk to someone who says, baptism doesn't save, or baptism saves? Well, have you heard of the thief on the cross? And every time he tries to make a theological point, he just gets cut off and says, oh, but baptism doesn't save? What about the thief on the cross? He didn't get baptized. And people going to that time and time again. Well, the best way to avoid that kind of loop is to break the chain and go to passages where baptism's not only diminished, but made distinguished from the gospel itself. I wouldn't say it's diminished. I would avoid that term because baptism is really an important step of growth in our walk with God, but it is not a prerequisite for a walk with God. And that is the diminishment. It's noting it's the gospel, salvation, <laughs> whether you go to heaven or not, and water baptism. Let me take the passage in Acts first, and then you can follow up by sharing some of the, the biblical perspective on, on baptism. Let, yeah, let, and just note the let, point. I'm not, I don't want to go to the thief on the cross because it's irrelevant to the point, and a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm prepared for this. Now let's get into a rational discussion. Okay, we're both Acts thinking. chapter 2 and verse uh, 37, uh, actually we could say at verse 36, Simon Peter sums up his sermon in Pentecost, saying, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and let you, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Okay, notice something here. When someone quotes this passage, they'll say, ah, see? You have to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. In other words, the only way you're going to get remission of sins is to be baptized. Well, let's be careful here. Uh, the word para here in Greek, uh, we get this uh, term, ba uh, baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. Uh, it literally means for. Now, that word for in English can have one of two meanings. It can have the meaning of saying, in order to produce something. Or it can mean, as a result of something that has already happened. 
a great example of this would be if I were to say to you, I need to take an aspirin for a headache, okay? It isn't because I want to produce a headache, right? It's because of a pre-existing condition. I, I have, have a headache, headache therefore so I, ought to. I will take an aspirin for that. Okay, which of these two is in view here? Well, going back to verse 37, listen to the response of the crowd that is going to respond and be baptized to Simon Peter. It says, and when they heard this, Bible says what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, they've heard the word of God. They responded how? In faith. How do we know they responded in faith? Because it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what should we do? In other words, an already internal reality has taken place here in the hearts of the listenership. They are cut to the heart. They say, okay, uh, we believe that Jesus was the Messiah. We believe that he died for our sins. What should we do? Well, then Peter says, repent. In other words, turn from trusting in yourself to trusting in God and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In other words, because your sins are remitted, because you've been saved and justified by faith and that alone, that then allows you to be baptized. Understand something. If you are water baptized and you have no faith, I don't even think people that teach baptismal regeneration would say to somebody, um, well, you want to be baptized. Do you believe in Jesus? No. Would they go ahead and baptize them, hoping that the act of baptism is suddenly going to change their mind about Christ, do the repentance thing, cause them to turn and trust God? I've never met a group, no matter how into water baptism, that would suggest such a thing. You're only baptized. Why? Because you put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And this internal action, being cut to the heart, turning and trusting in God, and saying, okay, what do I do now? Notice they're asking a very uh, practical question. What do I do now that I've put my trust in Jesus? Peter said, repent, turn from your previous life, and be baptized. In other words, make a public declaration of the faith that you've got. So then as a follow-through, and this is also true if you're dealing with cultic groups that have these pre-rehearsed ideas to dismiss you, what then is the best way to respond? Get them off their routine. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul made an interesting observation when it was discussing sectarianism, and again, we're pressed for time. Let me read it. It says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now notice how he goes on to describe baptism. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, here's where it gets difficult. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross should be of Christ be made of no effect. Jesus wasn't withholding salvation from the Corinthians. He was making a distinction. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. 
and be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.